I like to say that the community science is equal parts community and science. You know, we're very much interested in the engagement with the community. That's the newsletters, the stories, but also the uh, science part as well. Welcome to the Field Notes podcast. You just heard from Karen Klinger, Senior GIS Specialist at the Field Museum. In this episode, we talk with Karen and Mark Johnston, Lead GIS Analyst at the Field Museum. During our conversation, we learn about the GIS and conservation work Karen and Mark do at the museum. Welcome back to the Field Notes podcast. Demaya and I are really excited to have two folks from the Field Museum here with us today. Mark, Karen, thanks so much for joining us. And if each of you want to just introduce yourself, uh, tell us a little bit about who you are and how you got to GIS in the Field Museum. Great. So I'm Mark Johnston, and uh, I've been at the Field Museum for about 11 years. And uh, getting to the museum, I, I kind of did a lot of research in um, ecology. And that research is focused down in South America around some ethnobotany research. And the focus of that in, incorporated a lot of GIS. And uh, at Field Museum, we do a ton of work actually in the Andes Amazon and, and also um, in the Chicago region. And with that, that experience, it was just kind of a natural fit for me. And it was a place that I've, I, the museum is a place that I've come as a kid and also with my, my research wanted to end up in, in this kind of environment. So it's been a good fit for me. And I'm Karen Klinger, and I originally studied wildlife biology um, in undergraduate and got introduced to GIS through that program um, and followed that up with a master's in GIS. And so I have a passion for conservation, but also being able to visually show what you're seeing and be able to use that to understand the world around you and make better decisions. So I've been at the Field Museum about three and a half years. And prior to that, I was in environmental and cultural consulting. This is my first time, I guess, being aware of the intersection of GIS and museums and kind of learning about GIS-specific roles that kind of exist at museums. So I'm wondering, what does it mean to be a GIS analyst at a museum? And how does that compare to, like, I guess, other GIS-specific positions that you had at more maybe GIS-focused organizations? And, and, and being a GIS analyst, how do you interact with other departments or other um, positions at the Field Museum? Yeah, so so we do a lot of work with other organizations within the museum or other departments rather within the museum that's focused around some some of the research studies. So there's been some where I've worked on fish cichlids, um, for example, in Central America, and uh, we've also done work. Uh, we do a lot of work on pollinators, and so we've kind of tapped into some of our collections work uh, with our partners there. But uh, the vast majority of our work is actually outside and, and kind of getting our feet dirty with, if you will, with uh, research in South America. And that's mostly, you know, some of our colleagues that do that work. A lot of environmental education work. Uh, so working with youths in the Chicago region and then uh, lots of GIS work. And so that's working with our colleagues and, and looking at kind of where we can do decision support systems and, and sort of data-driven decision-making around restoration work in the Chicago region. And I'll add that um, our center is unique among museums in general, just that we are doing applied conservation. We're using you know, the knowledge from the museum to do 
um, real on the ground conservation work, both in the Chicago area and in South America. So that lets us have that applied use of GIS with our colleagues and partners. I love that. And I love the fact that there's that education component too of you know, you know, the youth within the area too, to kind of training that next generation, right, of conservationists and, and folks who, that next generation who is going to carry on the work that you're doing. So that's really cool. So let's dive into the actual projects that both of you are working on right now. What's going on at the Field Museum? Well, I can take you through kind of a, a bit of a, a journey that we've been on. As I mentioned before, we've been doing a lot of work with pollinators, and that's been a big focus lately. One study we did, so there, there's, I don't know how much folks on the call or on the, on the podcast have heard about monarch butterflies, but the population has declined about 80% over the last 20 years, which is a pretty horrific amount, obviously. Wow. And that's for the, yeah. the main, yeah, that's the main Eastern population. And actually in the Western population, they're doing even worse. So it's pretty frightening. So the uh, Fish and Wildlife Service, you know, they, they're looking at whether they should list monarch butterflies as threatened or endangered. And uh, one of the research studies that came out to, to figure out really how monarch butterflies, you know, need to recover from this is that we really need to get more stems of milkweed in the ground. And they estimated that about 1.3 billion stems is what's needed. And so you might be wondering why milkweed? <laughs> so milkweed's the one plant that monarch butterflies lay their eggs on. And that's what the caterpillars eat as their food source. And uh, so we, we actually worked with our local U.S. Fish and Wildlife Office. They kind of came to us and they knew that we had a strong interest in working with pollinators and doing some of this research. And, and they found from that study, like they needed to, to look kind of at all sectors. They called it the all hands on, on deck approach of, of like, we need to look at agriculture, we need to look at grasslands and we need to look at urban. And nobody really knows, you know, what, how much milkweed there is in urban areas and how effective it can be for monarchs. Uh, so we, that kind of launched us into a big research study. And Karen kind of jumped on board at the end of that study and helped us to really take all the data and put it together and, and put a, a research paper out on that topic. So really quick, where does, is milkweed just kind of everywhere? Would you say, are there specific places it's at more than others or? Yeah, yeah, so milkweed, one of the great things about it is it really can grow in a lot of, a lot of places. It can grow really well. It's really been, you know, it used to be thriving in grasslands across the U.S., but of course grasslands have been reduced quite a bit, and we've replaced a lot of that with agriculture. The monarchs actually did pretty great for a while in agricultural fields, kind of along the margins, but we've gotten much more efficient, I guess, if you will, with our agriculture, and now we have much fewer sort of uh, less desirable and that would be all of our natives that kind of occur along the fringes of those areas and especially along those rights of ways. So you have road segments abutting the, uh, the agricultural fields. That's where you get a lot of these um, places where monarch butterflies would thrive. Um, but with GMOs, we're kind of we're spraying those plants and a lot of the, the weeds or the, the milkweeds are no longer present and the other natives along with it. Yeah, and you mentioned that the paper looked at different areas, including urban ones, is there a potential for milkweeds to grow well in, in urban areas? And if so, what does that potentially look like? Yeah, Karen, you wanna jump in on that? 
Yeah, so that's exactly what our findings was, is that um, residential areas have a really significant potential to support uh, milkweed and thus the monarch butterflies. So we did some preliminary look at what that looked like in residential areas, but obviously we can't go into everybody's backyards to understand it. And thus, uh, a few years ago, we started a community science project. So we're about to enter our fourth year of this project. And this is where we ask people who live in the Chicago area to go out into their garden and tell us about the monarch eggs and caterpillars that they're seeing on the milkweed plants that they have in their yards. And because it's Chicago, it's a diverse neighborhood of um, milkweed. Everything, patches look like maybe small pots on planters. Even one thing we saw last year that was really amazing was that a person lived, had a um, planter boxes on like the 20th floor of their building. And they took pictures and there were so many caterpillars on these Whoa. milkweed plants. So yeah, monarch butterflies can fly really high. And so we're showing that even in small pots in large gardens that you can find um, butterflies and that they can support them, the eggs and the caterpillars. Um, yeah, so it's been really exciting. We have um, a website that we created with the hub web, with the hub platform, and that's where people can actually interact. They can access the surveys, which are through Survey123. And so they can submit that. And because those are integrated, they can actually see the results live as data is uh, submitted. So you can see the number of eggs and caterpillars that have been observed each year. And then we also have results from our previous years. I developed some dashboards using ArcGIS dashboards platform. So you can actually interact with some of our data from the last three years and look at um, where the sites are and filter them based on the number of eggs that we're seeing, the number of caterpillars that we're seeing, and start to look at those characteristics of what makes a patch that is supports more or less uh, monarch eggs and caterpillars. Amazing. So when people in the community are filling out these surveys, what kind of information are they inputting? I know you mentioned eggs and patch information, but can they also take pictures or yeah, what are exactly are they looking at? Yeah, so the way we have it set up is they first tell us about the site that they're going to be monitoring. So typically that's their home. And they'll tell us about um, some of the things they find. This protocol is actually in line with a larger national pro project. That's the Monarch Larva Monitoring Project. And so what's great about that is that while we are able to use and analyze our data, we are also able to submit that data into this national database that they've used for a number of research studies. Um, so we do have questions that are lined up with that project. So that, that enables that transmission um, submission for that. We also ask about the their patch, you know, what are the milkweed species in the patch that they're planning to monitor? And then once they submit that, they will get a, a link to the weekly survey. And that's the survey that they fill out every week um, where they tell us about the eggs and caterpillars that they see, as well as the general health of the patch. And also observations such as adult monarchs, other insects and spiders. Um, and also the blooming flowers, which is an also important element of the um, milkweed patches that we found. And we always ask for um, stories and photos. Uh, what's great about the project is we also send out a biweekly newsletter and we use some of those photos and stories that people have shared with us. And we've seen so many stories. It's actually one of the best parts of the project is, is seeing people's experiences through their stories and their pictures. I could see how like, people get, would get really attached to this project, especially, yeah. I mean, it could, you know, you could have, you could be supporting these creatures right outside of your window, as you mentioned, 
but you know, with these community science projects, I'm always interested in, in how you get the word out and, and what the uptake is like. So what was that process like in, in getting people involved with, with this project? Yeah, we have a, a, a number of partners that we reach out to to help us share the word. We also have people that have shown interest in our work through a number of years. So we also reached out through them. Also use the Field Museum's word as well, their um, publicity to also uh, try and get the word out. And it has been also word of mouth. We have people who share it with their neighbors and friends. And last year we had over 50 people who had returned from the previous year. Uh, last week we did a training for many of those returnees. So we had about 70 returnees who are interested in participating again this year. Especially during the pandemic, this was an activity that allowed people to go out in their yards and spend time there really appreciating what they saw and learning. They told us all about stuff that they never knew was there and was happening in their gardens. I love that. And I find that like a lot of people do want to contribute to these efforts, but it's oftentimes like, how should I, how do I contribute to these conservation projects or endeavors and to do have such an accessible way to do so like that's really cool that you were able to to make that happen i think one of the one of the key things we're also working toward with that project is to figure out like what makes one habitat area more productive than another like what's interesting is some folks go out that looks like thriving habitat and they're just not finding very many eggs or very many caterpillars and then other places they're going bonkers so what is the difference between those habitat types? And I think that's part, is that right, Karen, that that's part of what you guys are trying to tease apart is like, where are they really successful and where aren't they doing as well? Yeah, that is part of it. It's hard also because there are places that, you know, one year do really well and one year don't. So there is that variation that you can't necessarily account for. But on our results page, you can read a little summary about that we found that typically, it's maybe not surprising is that patches that had a large amount of food, both for the adults, so that's like the different blooming plants, but also sufficient food for the caterpillars. So that's both a mix of different milkweed species and also a large, larger quantity of milkweed tended to have more eggs and caterpillars. But we do also emphasize that we've seen like a single potted plant that was able to support a monarch. Like we, what was amazing was someone submit a series of photos from egg to caterpillar to chrysalis to adult on a single potted plant. So just to show that, you know, we we definitely encourage people to have patches of all sizes, but um, yeah, typically the ones that were more successful do tend to have that uh, more abundance. Nice, I think that just shows the, the beauty of community science programs. You're able to kind of get all this abundant information and really involve people in understanding, I guess, the world around them. And allowing them to be a part of that story too, yeah. really bringing the museum to them, especially in pandemic times when folks couldn't visit or, or couldn't learn about these things. And it's not just, oh, no, I'm learning about it at home. I'm participating. I'm making a difference at home. Exactly. Yeah, that's that's one of the best parts. And we at the end of the season, we do an end of year celebration event. 2019, we were able to do that in person. The last two years have been on Zoom. But it is trying to you know acknowledge and, and we share out the reports with them too, so they can see what were their results and you know share it out with everybody to you know get them involved in that process. You know, this is their data as well. I like to say that the community science is equal parts community and science. You know, we're very much interested in the engagement with the community. That's the newsletters, the stories, but also the uh, science part as well. 
So this sounds like more of an urban project. Are there any projects that you guys do that are within the Chicago area, but are a little bit more rural or more out like in the wilderness? Um, and if so, what are some of those? We've got a big project that I'm basically most of my time is dedicated to now, uh, which is a database system. It's kind of a conservation database system for the whole Chicago region. And so this is, a, we call it CW Hub. So it's obviously it's built on the Esri Hub technology as well. Approximately 38 counties. That, so it's a really big geography that we're talking about, the Chicago Wilderness region. So it's partly in uh, Wisconsin, Indiana, Illinois, of course, and Michigan. And so with this system, and this is, this is really, um, I should first mention that Chicago Wilderness is really a consortium of a whole bunch of conservation organizations, um, probably around 300 or so, I would say. And we've kind of come together around some key initiatives that we want to focus on. So things like management and expansion of habitat um, areas and also the, the sustainable agriculture. So agriculture is really important in our area. When you talk about, you probably heard about the, uh, the White House's initiative, the 30 by 30, that 30% of uh, areas are protected by the year 2030. Well, in our region of, of Illinois dominated area, there's only about 4% of our areas actually protected. Um, it's really high quality areas, but a lot of the region is um, agriculture. So we really, if we, as we start to turn towards how can we protect and enhance habitat in our region, we need to consider ag. So that's a big piece of it. So that making agriculture uh, friendly for uh, pollinators and, and actually creating habitat and not contributing to climate change. Uh, there's green infrastructure, so really creating um, more habitat within urban areas. And that's, you know, obviously a lot about what Karen was talking about too, is like, what can you do in your backyard and in your front yard? And then climate change issues are super important to us. Um, access to nature. So really, how do you how do you engage people and, and have them a part of this solution of, of creating habitat and then protecting our floodlands and waterways. So all of those are sort of different initiatives with whole working groups behind each of them. And um, we kind of come together around this CW Hub website by kind of, we've got a, a platform for each one of those initiatives. And we're looking at how do, how do we track our progress over time within each of those? What are the key data layers that we need to consider to help kind of a data-driven process of, of informing where we should do our, our work, whether it's restoration or outreach. And so we've, we've put together kind of, the, of a, a large repository that uh, we can also allow folks to contribute to that kind of covers the whole region that I've described. So yeah, it's a really important system, I think, and, and hopefully it's a model for other places as well for, for work that can be done across you know, other parts of the nation. Definitely. So when you talk about folks contributing to that uh, with, the, with the hub system, what, could you talk a little bit more about that and how they would contribute? Yeah, absolutely. So um, we've, we've used a whole bunch of interns to kind of come together and, and search around and work with partners to, to begin to put together that repository of, of existing data, but of course we need the help of all of our partners too. So they can go to the system, they can create a, uh, a community account in uh, Esri Hub and, uh, and, and actually just, uh, so it has a survey one, two, three form that's built in. So it collects all the metadata and information about what they have to upload for the system. 
And then it goes through kind of a checks and balance process after they submit it, where we've got our kind of data shepherds that go in and take a look at the data, uh, visualize it in a way that once it's added to a map that it's going to look good. Um, so that's all part of the sort of back end work that we're doing to develop the system to to make sure what's in there is vetted data and that can also help us to track progress. It's worked out to be a, a great system for us. It's a good solution. Nice. And how long has this project been going on? Um, good question. I would say <laughs> about a year um, and we probably will have a number of years of support kind of moving forward, but it's definitely still being developed as we're as we're working now. Yeah. And it sounds like you guys are tackling some really big but extremely important goals. And I think it makes sense that so many organizations have to be kind of contributing this data because you're trying to figure out, you know, things like habitat expansion or tackling climate change. You kind of need that all working together. So I think, again, it just shows one of the beauties of being able to kind of utilize GIS as a way to cross-populate and kind of collaborate on data collection and being able to cross state lines to kind of collect data and um, really tackle some very large goals. Uh, I think this project is kind of an exemplar of that. Yeah, yeah, it's it's definitely a, a challenge when you're working across state lines and different, you know, county governments, as well as, you know, state level. It, that's where it's kind of a bit of a, a struggle where we really have to find those data sets that ideally cover the whole region. Right, but you also want to use the, the specific information of like local conservation level work that's being done. So we also provide tools, you know, like uh, using survey one, two, threes and field maps that folks can log in and submit like where they're doing restoration work. So we're trying to leverage all those tools as best we can to get data really across the whole region. Yeah, and that's the best way to to do it right it's like how do i contribute how do we get all of this data it's like well hopefully people can just take their phone out right and and kind of participate with this and and be that person who's walking around and collecting data from the areas that you might not have access to exactly yeah so i guess across all of these projects have there been any interesting insights or conclusions that um, maybe volunteers have reached or you guys have seen within your work that have really surprised you or i guess inspired you in the work that you've done yeah, well, we're, we're still very much in the building stage. I feel like we're always building. Karen and I are constantly cranking out new apps and, and materials. And so getting to those sort of like ultimate findings, it feels like they're always unfolding. There's, there's one, this, we didn't even talk about this, but I've done some work with uh, Morton Arboretum and uh, they have a Chicago region tree initiative. And uh, they, there's an app, we called it the witness tree app and where people can go out and they look where um, the original survey trees that were back from the 1800s where they, they mapped out where all these trees were and we're looking at which ones are still existing, still standing from these original surveys. And it's amazing how many they found. So there's a whole bunch of these around. So that's just kind of a fun one that people can you know, pull this up on their phone, walk around and see like, you know, most of them, of course, are gone. But the ones that are still there are kind of historic landmarks. So, yeah, kind of lots of little applications like that can be great. Yeah, we're also finding, you know, there's there's so many parts of the region as, as unique and amazing um, of a wilderness system that we have in the Chicago region. There's also areas that are that have a lot of invasive species that we need to um, map out and figure out how to sort of convert that back into high quality habitat. And so those areas we're, we're also working on mapping out using satellite technology 
and then also getting people in the field to start to like actually tag where those locations are. So we have other examples of where to find it. So satellite technology, what does that entail? That sounds really cool. <laughs> sure. So this is um, some research we did. This is a while back where we used um, Landsat um, uh, satellites to uh, to locate where buckthorn is present. So buckthorn is a, a shrub that grows uh, in the understory of uh the forest canopy and it's um, uh, it's European, so it's it doesn't it's not initially from this region, and it's really kind of taken over the understory, and so a lot of the oaks aren't able to uh, regenerate because those seedlings kind of get shaded out. So it's an important one to to remove in our area, and so using the satellite imagery, what's super cool is that because the buckthorn holds on to its leaves for longer than most of the other deciduous trees. You can fly a drone or you can use uh, satellite technology and a Landsat to see the green leaves after all the other leaves have fallen off. So late, late fall. And then even into winter, we take another image to see like those green lawns and grasses that are still green at that time of the year. We can figure out what, what was green in late fall versus what's green in early like December. And if it's uh, if it was green and it's no longer green, then it's probably buckthorn or honeysuckle is another one that, that uh, is kind of really invasive. So that was kind of a neat study, but a lot more of that work needs to be done to really map it all out. Definitely. It's amazing to think back to like a time before we had these like flying machines and also like phones and digital technology, like just in the scope of conservation work, it seems like with every year there's something new we can discover because of this technology. Yeah, one of the cool things that we're looking to do in the future is to look at some of those corridors. So rights of ways are another super important one. I, I think I talked on the previous podcast, um, Esri Summit, we mentioned a, a database system we developed for, for rights of ways systems. Rights of ways, you know, can be a really great place to help to connect habitat from all these natural areas. And using drones, we can kind of fly some of those areas and find out where those invasive species are that we were just speaking of. And like, again, convert that poor quality habitat to high quality habitat and then help to link those natural areas together. So that's something we really want to dive into in the future here. Mark, for listeners who might not know what rights of ways are, and by listeners, I mean, I do not fully know what a rights of way is. Could you just provide a, a definition of what that what those are? Absolutely. So um, as you're, you hop in your car and you drive down the highway, you are driving through a rights of way area. So that's a transportation rights of way. And also like rail lines um, are, are certainly those part of those corridors. So you can imagine sometimes you're driving down the highway and you got like quality looking habitat on either side of you. But most of the time it's sort of just sort of a low grade grass or maybe um full of uh, maybe something like Phragmites, which is another invasive that we struggle with. And then there's also all the utility lines. So all of our phone lines and all of the, uh, the power lines that are kind of you know cut through forested, they go across ag, they're all over the place. And a lot of those areas, there are great opportunities for converting that um, whatever existing habitat is there over to like high quality habitat. So they, they, they represent a really great opportunity for doing some of this conservation work. And are you guys already starting to build information or kind of gather some data about different rights-of-way locations in your area? 
Yeah, there's there's some great ongoing work. Um, so Iris Caldwell at University of Illinois Chicago, um, she heads up the Rights Away's Habitat Working Group. They, I know, working with the Donnelly Foundation, provided them with some funding to pull together all of our local Rights Away organizations to really target, like, what can we do in our area? How do we prioritize of all those rights ways that are out there, how do we prioritize which ones we focus on first? Because there's so many miles of this, this you know, potential habitat area, which ones do we, do we really want to work on? And uh, I mean, I was on a call yesterday where we were just talking about this and where we need to find those places where say Phragmites, which is a real um, problem in the, in the wetland areas, how do we, remove that Phragmites and replace it with something that's much better habitat. So instead of actually having these areas link invasive species into our, you know, glorious uh, protected areas, um, we want to make those links be, uh, you know, where wildlife can pass through them and sort of create um, the links that are necessary, particularly in the face of climate change, they need to be able to, wildlife needs to be able to travel. And, and that also includes flora too, that actually needs to slowly be able to travel um, through those areas too. Yeah, it's almost like finding a way, like how can these things coexist, right? You know, one, this public uh, land or service or utility or transportation, but also making sure that it is still uh, as much as possible a good place for, for habitation as well. Mm -hmm. Right, right. Yeah, and certainly, you know, the, uh, the pollinators and the birds that um, need to, to be able to travel, you know, long distances, particularly in the case of monarch butterflies, um, they really need those corridors to, to be able to travel those long distances effectively. Definitely. Well, Mark, Karen, I believe this is all the time that we have for today. But thank you both so much for joining us on the podcast. I feel like I learned so much. I'm going to go look up some pictures of monarch butterflies now and uh, definitely check out a lot of the resources that y'all have. So there are ways that people can find out about this stuff, right? Or want to who want to keep up with the project? Absolutely. Yeah, we definitely want to share those with you. And I'm sure, Karen, you want to also have folks jump in, right? Uh, yeah, so we, like I said, we have a hub website where you can find everything you want to know about our project, including all of those results that I mentioned. So the, the short way to get to it is bit.ly uh, slash monarch monitors, all lowercase. We'll have those links available. So learn about these awesome projects, get involved if you can. Uh, it's definitely for a really awesome cause. And Mark has a... Yeah, <laughs> so yeah, it's hub.chicagowilderness.org. Well, thank you guys again for talking with us today. Hey, this was a lot of fun. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Field Notes podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, subscribe to Field Notes on your favorite podcast streaming platform and make sure to join us on the next episode.